Hey crew, before we get started today, I just wanted to say welcome to season four of Enterprising Individuals. I'm so excited to be back. It just it felt really weird not producing new episodes every week, but uh, we're back now and I'm chomping at the bit to kick off our fourth year of the show. So welcome. We'll get started in just a minute. I wanted to make a few public service announcements first. If you like the show and you like the thoughtful, in-depth discussions about Star Trek that we have, you should join us on Facebook. We have a discussion group called Enterprising Interlocutions, where we talk about the ins and outs of your favorite episodes of Trek, just like on this show. So come check us out by searching for Enterprising Interlocutions on the book. And we also have even more offerings for our patrons this year. We've got our usual recaps, our episode commentaries, and our show merch. And we're adding outtakes from guest interviews. Sometimes the conversation turns to interests outside of Star Trek. Uh, and that stuff usually ends up on the cutting room floor. Um, for instance, my guest today, Lee Sargent, and I talked about non-Trek subjects. I think more than we actually talked about Star Trek. Uh, but you can hear the deleted scenes, if you will, from each episode. If you're a patron, go to patreon.com forward slash E-I-S-T-P-O-D. And for just $1 a month, you get access to all of that and sneak peeks at what's coming up on the show this year. I hope you're watching Discovery. And if you are, you might be interested in our side project, Discoverage, where I and my co-host Ella Pearson do a live recap show every Thursday night after Star Trek Discovery is released on CBS All Access. Uh, season two of Discovery has been great so far. Uh, the show has been fun to do so far. Uh, we've got some great guests lined up for few future episodes. So join us Thursdays for Discoverage. You can go to enterprisingindividuals.com for more details. Okay. Let's get cracking. I had a lot of fun talking with my guest, Lee Sargent, for today's episode. Uh, Lee lives in Australia, and they were experiencing a heat wave in the Antipodes uh, at the same time that we were suffering through the polar vortex here in the anti-Antipodes. And so uh, we did our best to work it out. Um, we got a little silly, but we had a good time. And I know how the international dateline works now, so that's good. So enjoy the episode. With that, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know... What you're thinking There are some things you can't hide I wanna know What you're feeling Tell me what's on your mind Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and Pergium miners take heart. After loading 16 tons, you may be a day older, but debt no longer exists in the 23rd century. Now, about your paychecks. <clears throat> I'm joined on this episode by Lee Sargent. Lee is an illustrator, blogger, and podcaster, and he's the artist behind the Star Trek 365 project. Lee, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's great to have you here. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking <laughs> about The Devil in the Dark, the 26th episode of the first season of Star Trek, the original series. Seeking out new life and new civilizations is the five-year mission of the USS Enterprise, and on her journeys, she's discovered a multitude of alien life forms, some welcoming and some threatening. 
The vast majority of those aliens tend to be humanoids with a primary skin color or Play-Doh foreheads, but some are so strange and so truly alien that they challenge our idea of what life is. And the real mission of Starfleet begins when we learn to put aside our prejudices and preconceptions to truly embrace the discoveries that we seek. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Lee, let's talk about your backstory. Every time I have a new guest on, I want to know how they first became a Star Trek fan. Yeah, no problem. I uh, actually came to Star Trek pretty early on uh, as a kid. We used to have it here in Australia uh, on, I think it was on Saturdays or, or Sunday afternoons. And it always felt like it was uh, the first season was repeated over and over again. I don't know <laughs> if they showed the last, two, the second two seasons as much. Uh, but I remember seeing the Corbomite maneuver a lot. Um, okay, sure. And, you know, and maybe that's because as a kid, I, I really probably just saw Baylock and, and really that kind of solidified itself into my memory. Uh, but that's, yeah, that was my earliest. Because, like, I, I remember uh, they used to have shows like um, uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and stuff like that. So it was really a golden era of these kind of innovative sci-fi shows that we may have, you know, may if you kind of describe them out loud, might appear a little bit silly now, like Land of the Giants and stuff like that. Yes. But, um, you know, it was just a perfect a perfect time for, for me as a child to do, to discover sci-fi on television. Of course, Star Trek was the, uh, the number one for me. And it's really odd because none of my family were massively into Star Trek at all. This is something I came to on my own, which, was, which is kind of nice. Uh, Star Trek uh, is uh, belongs to the world, but it is hmm. originally an American property. Are there any um, are there any like uh, Australian sci-fi shows that maybe uh, American well, or worldwide audiences wouldn't really know? I wouldn't wouldn't really know. Uh, well, Farscape was made here, uh, of course. Um, yes. So as we so we had a lot of a lot of Australian accents on that show, which is nice to see. Yeah, a lot of, um, a lot of aliens were from Australia in that. Yeah. Yeah, there were a lot of. Yeah, that's exactly right. Space uh, Space Perth. <laughs> that's it. That's it. It was, and it was weird too because it wasn't that big here when it was first on. Uh, I remember they they had uh, Channel Nine. I think was the channel here in Australia that that co-financed it. Did you have and the sci-fi channel there, like the cable no, channel? No, not really. We do now, um, sure. and we probably did a while after that. But um, it took a fair while for what we call pay TV to come out here okay. in Australia. Yeah, because uh, we, we always just had our free to air, and and I'm pretty certain our TV does is quite different to the way American TV set up. Because I'm not 100 percent sure I understand uh, how like cable versus networks versus whatever uh, over there. Uh, but we just had like a like say four free to air television sh um, stations, which would show a mixture of American, British, and Australian content. I uh, see. Okay. Which is probably the yeah they're probably the three biggest that we we would get. Uh, I just because like Doctor Who, I grew up with Doctor Who, which is you know a British thing, and I, I know that's big in America now. But I think when I was a kid, it wasn't a big thing in America. Um, but Farscape's probably the one that I, I, I latch onto, <laughs> yeah, because it was such a great production, and uh, it, it just didn't get as much love here that as it should have done. I love uh, Farscape, and I mention it probably way too much on a Star Trek show, but uh, <laughs> maybe someday I'll, I'll do a Farscape po uh, podcast. Um, you're the creator of the Star Trek 365 project, which I'm sure my listeners are familiar with, but just in case they aren't, can you tell mm -hmm. us all about it? So last year I embarked on a somewhat silly idea, uh, was to draw and post a Star Trek scribble every day. 
and I say scribble because they vary from from what they are type of thing. I, I, I the absolute kind of the simplest I've ever done was a um, was a Spock on a um, napkin uh, at the very last minute uh, a couple of years ago, uh, which was kind of it was at a Christmas party or something, and I just realised I hadn't posted something. Uh, so what it was, it's a daily illustration uh, featuring Star Trek. And I managed to get through last year, and it was a uh, it was an amazing kind of experience because it's one of those kind of things where you you're challenging yourself, and you become extraordinarily exhausted, and the world keeps going on, and you need to balance that. But it was really wonderful for my own personal journey drawing. When we were coming towards the end of the year, I had a lot of people kind of because we grew a wonderful community around it. Um, a lot of kind of really supportive, just fun Star Trek fans who just celebrated kind of all these little moments in Star Trek. And I had a lot of them kind of saying, well, what am I going to do next year now uh, when these don't come into my in my inbox every morning? And I was like, well, I tell you what, I, and I, it was something I was toying with uh, for ages is to keep the Star Trek 365 going. Not me drawing it because um, I think my arm would have fallen off Uh, (laughs) but then I threw it over to everyone else because a couple of times throughout the year you know um, particularly when I was really tired uh, people would be like why didn't you put this character in it's like "Uh," (laughs) you know it's my drawing you know you you just you, you do you do it type yes. of thing I'm a and so man that's flesh and blood <laughs> yeah exactly it's like i cannot put everyone's favorite character into these drawings every day so what i did was i threw it out to everyone and said look it's your turn i don't care how i don't care what uh, level you're at i don't care what medium you use i don't care kind of as long as it's creative as long as it's something um, of your own uh, i'd love to see everyone's star trek fan art and i will feature a different one every day for 2019 and that's what we've been doing and it's been absolutely amazing the the um response was immediate which was awesome i I got like a full month's worth of of illustrations or photos sent through uh pretty much straight away so it wasn't a matter of having to chase anyone down yeah uh but i've seen knitting uh i've seen uh bridge schematics um (laughs) i've seen mocked uh mock-up um novels uh it's it's just yeah i'm i'm constantly impressed by by the creativity and the different directions that this all takes and i just um i'm really enjoying it i'm really having as as much fun as hopefully everyone else is yeah um the it's such an amazing collaboration and people's contributions are there's just so many talented people out there mm. and it's it's great that something like trek uh can and then you yourself of course can get people together to do this uh clearly you can't pick favorites but there are any submissions <laughs> that really surprised you or, or really stood out for you weirdly enough um today's uh, when we're recording uh it's actually one done by a 12-year-old or 11-year-old, um, okay. I think 12. And it's just wonderful. It's a Trouble with Tribbles uh, illustration. Uh, apparently, they were just uh, so excited to hear that they could contribute to the to the project that they ran out and just you know, drew this kind of, drew their version of Kirk being swarmed by Tribbles. And I think that's just so exciting because even today, I got an email from someone saying how much that they and their kids enjoy the daily drawings and how inspired the kids were to kind of do their own drawings. And I think that's anyone who's seen my illustrations realize that I'm not doing photo perfect illustrations um, of people. Uh, I do a very Zen childlike approach to drawing, uh, which has taken me, you know, nearly 
you know 30 years to develop which is crazy yeah but it, it's 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 accessible to anyone. And this is something that I can't stress enough about, particularly even the Star Trek 365 project, but any for any franchise, any genre, anything. I just, if you could draw a stick figure and everyone can, um, I, I get hear so many people say, I can't draw. And it's like, you can, you just can't draw the way you would like to draw or the way you <laughs> picture someone drawing type of thing. Sure, because sure. if, you know, any artist would tell you that they, they have people that they admire and um, every time they post something beautiful online, it kills them a little bit inside their heart um, because they'd like to steal their abilities. But, you know, it's, and, and we all bring something different to the um, to the table. But I really stress that I just, if you can draw, you know, if you can just get over yourself and, and draw a stick figure version of it, I think yeah. that's awesome. And it's creative and it's wonderful and it's it's something that fans can own. Um, and I think that's the important thing. If you want Kirk and and Spock and and Janeway and Chakotay to team up on an away team mission, you can do that <laughs> with your own drawings, and no one can stop you. And you know, and it doesn't matter how good it is or how how. And I don't like to use the word bad it is because that's not a thing. But but how much you you know how rudimentary it might be. It's your kind of pouring an imagination into a piece of paper, which is relatively cheap and accessible to everyone in the world, um, which is the other thing I love about drawing. It's you don't need to invest a huge amount. You uh, you need a pencil and a notepad and you can just go. And I think that's kind of I think that's just wonderful. And it just fills my heart with joy when I see people being inspired. And I think I I probably uh, to, to kind of elaborate even further on your question before, which was my favorite or favorites or the ones that stand out. I think it's the ones that stand out the most to me are the people who are really trying. And it's it sounds again, it sounds, you know, like I'm, I'm kind of saying, oh, they're not, not good illustrators or they're not whatever. And that's not the case at all. What I'm saying is they're clearly they've put themselves out there and, the, you know, and and they may not be drawing again photo perfect drawings but they they're putting themselves out there and and expressing that joy of star trek and i just i think that's wonderful and that's and it makes it all worthwhile to me that advice uh, that advice about the joy is is i think really important and it's something yeah. that i wish that i had heard when i was younger <laughs> i have a friend oh yeah uh, one of my best friends who's a illustrator and a comic book artist uh, now and at the time when we were in you know junior high or grade school you know we would both draw and i would draw like what i thought was one you know, perfectly sculpted Ninja Turtle head. You know, I'd be like, hey, check this out. And then over on his side, he's done both sides of the book cover, like this tableau yeah. of them fighting against Shredder on a rooftop. And I'm like, yeah. screw this, break my pencil, I'm done. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. look, and that, it'll kill you if you try and if you try and compare yourself to anyone. Like, I, yeah. I guarantee the best artists out there have someone in the back of their mind that they're just they're jealous of. Absolutely. So. Well, pretty soon you and other scribblers will have lots of material to work with. Uh, I've lost track of how many new Star Trek shows have been announced <laughs> at this point. Um, are there any uh, new shows that have been announced in particular that you're looking forward to? I, I guess like everyone else, I'm probably interested in see what they do with the Picard show. Mm -hmm. um, I've been a little resistant to um, like Discovery, uh, simply in that I just... It wasn't quite hitting the mark for me um, in the first season. Uh, the second season so far, I, I'm, again, torn, which is so weird um, because they've changed a lot of the stuff that I probably would have not have loved in the first season. Um, mm. And now they've kind of done it, and I'm like, uh, now I kind of feel bad for the, Wait, for the Discovery crew. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, because like I actually... 
I will admit that, like a Saru when um, Saru first came, when they first introduced the character, I kind of thought he was a bit ridiculous because is this whole kind of um, you know sensing death and that's what they've been born to do type of thing, and it's like that doesn't seem like a great ability to um to have, um because it seemed very arbitrary about whenever his gangly would go up, right? But um. I actually, yeah, he completely won me over by the end of the season. Uh, and I really, really love the character now. And so now I'm kind of a little bit like, uh, look, I love seeing Captain Pike, but I'd like to see Captain Saru. Oh, so yeah. I, I want to see the original, you know, the original Discovery crew kind of shining a lot more um, instead of being overshadowed possibly by, you know, original series characters. Um, but, you know, look, I'll take whatever they got. And with the new shows coming out, it's like, uh, I just don't, I, I don't think you can kind of, you, you they're never going to be able to um, reproduce exactly what's come before it, and you wouldn't want that. And, and I think you just need to be open to it and and realize that you know it's not taking away next generation. It's not taking away Day Space Nine and, and original series, which of course is my bread and butter. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't take away from any of those. It's, this is just where it's at, and it's interesting to see what they're doing. I think Discovery hasn't screwed it up. I think that they are in pretty good hands, and so I'm definitely looking forward to seeing where they go. Uh, why did you choose this specific episode, Devil in the Dark, to discuss today? It's it is my it's my favorite episode, and oh. it wasn't. It, it's it's actually yeah, it's my favorite episode across the board. Um, I and I didn't know this until I used to think that. Uh, again, City on the Edge of Forever, which a lot of people will will quote as the best episode of Star Trek. Right. I, I actually, um, and it's a great episode. It's it's one of my favorites easily, and probably was my favorite until I realized that Devil in the Dark is actually my favorite episode, and the episode that I think embodies Star Trek in its completeness um, in one episode. I think everything in Star Trek can be seen in this episode. Um, and I think that it's, it's a wonderful, um, it, it's a wonderfully made episode as well. Um, uh, but yeah, it's my, it's my favorite. So I thought when, when we were kind of discussing it, uh, yeah, I just, why not talk about the episode I love the most? I definitely agree that. And as we'll see later, um, other creators, uh, definitely felt the same way about it encapsulating, you know, everything that there is about Trek. Mm. My favorite episode is people. I like City on the Edge of Forever as well. You know, it's masterfully written, but mm. it's one of those episodes where it takes you away from what the show is really. Yeah, do you yeah. know what I mean? So as oh, far no, as it's just a good story, it's not. A, oh yeah, uh, yeah, a, yeah. It's not a great Star Trek episode, but it's a great story. Yeah, um, it's it's the best. The yeah, it's the best episode uh, Star Trek episode where Spock wears a longshoreman's cap for the entire episode. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but uh, what my favorite, I think, um, probably of original series is um, uh, Dagger of the Mind. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah, uh, which is a, you know is an early one yeah. in uh, in the first season, and it's simply because for me that's kind of what Trek you know really is. Um, there's no really aliens involved, and not mm. Trek doesn't always have a psychological sort of element to it, but just Kirk throwing himself around there's uh, there's a beautiful yeah. uh woman who's also really capable spock is he's on the case in that episode he's saving everybody's yeah. you know butt uh and there's like a bad guy a bad guy who's in a position of authority that he's abusing it's like you see that especially in more modern trek you see that kind of story mm. a lot i think yeah definitely it's it's really i've never heard anyone say this <laughs> Oh. Um, it's no, you've taken me kind of quite surprised by that because it's an episode that I 
um, in fairness to it, uh, I recognise exactly what you're saying. You're 100% correct. But it's an episode I tend to avoid. Uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, it's, it's, it doesn't float my boat as much. Um, but I do recognise it as a really fantastic episode, as did the South Park people. Um, who I believe parried it completely in one of their episodes um, at the planetarium instead of the sanitarium or whatever they were calling it. Um, yeah, so that, that really, and again, that just impresses me about the, I love um, encountering people who who have an episode that isn't City on Edge Forever. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know uh, about this uh, South Park episode. I gotta, I gotta watch. There's this South a South Park. Pa- yeah, no, there's a hundred. There's a South Park episode because they're they're massive fans as well, and they parody that whole episode. And they're um, like brainwashing people to be uh, yes, more. Ba- at the planetarium. Behavior. Okay. Okay. The planetarium. And they even use the same. At, they even use the same device. It's the same <laughs> room. It's um first season, I think. First season South Park. Um, check it out, definitely. Yeah, it's it's complete because I'm watching the entire episode, going, oh my god, this is Dagger of the Mind. Um, <laughs> And my wife is going, please stop saying that. <laughs> You're not making me love you anymore. <laughs> well, uh, we, we don't want to affect your relationship with this, so no, let's, no, we'll move on. Um, we are talking about The Devil in the Dark. It is the 26th episode of the first season of Star Trek, the original series. It first aired on March 9th of 1967, and it was written by Gene L. Kuhn, who We've already established on this program that he is definitely one of the faces on Mount Trekmore. But suffice Mm. it to say that he was the line producer for the original series from the departure of John D.F. Black in the first season until the episode A Private Little War, which was midway through the second season. He was also a story editor on the series. and He, of course, contributed many great scripts for the show and is responsible for the introduction of the Klingons, uh, the United Mm. Federation of Planets, Starfleet Command, the Prime Directive, and Khan to the Star Trek franchise. Uh, this episode was directed by Joseph Pevney. It's a name that we've also said many times on this show. He's tied with Mark Daniels for having directed the most episodes of the original series, and he won a Hugo Award for his work on The City on the Edge of Forever, as well as two additional nominations for The Trouble with Tribbles and Amok Time. The star date for this episode is 3196.1, and your assignment, Lee, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of The Devil in the Dark. I really wish I'd prepared for that. Um, 25 words. Okay, cool. The Enterprise is sent to investigate uh, a series of, of murders, I guess, uh, and sabotage at a mining facility, and they discover that things aren't what they seem. How's that? that? Yeah, I think that's pretty good. Or if you put that in, uh, if you put that in Horta speak, it'd be ugly humans, no take eye eggs or yeah, something like that's that. It. Uh, here's some yeah. interesting facts from the memory banks about this episode. This episode and all episodes from the original series owe a debt of gratitude to Kellum DeForest. DeForest had a one-man research company called the Kellum DeForest Research Company. He was hired by Roddenberry to verify facts and correct errors in scripts. Uh, and that extended to the scientific facts as well. Um, Kuhn had origi- originally used a different chemical uh, other than silicon uh, as the chemical that the hoarder were based on, and DeForest suggested that he use silicon instead. Uh, his original script also called the planet Thetis-6, but DeForest had discovered that uh, there was an asteroid named Thetis in our solar system already, and he suggested the name Janus-6 instead. Uh, he never received any screen credit for his work, as far as I know. I um, had never heard of him. Yes, so that's um, actually that's that's uh, that's actually all news to me. I learned about him through uh, Inside Star Trek, the uh, memoir by Herb Solo and right. um, uh, Bob Justman. Yeah, he did work for other TV shows as well. He worked on The Untouchables for Desi Lu, and he actually wrote um, 
I've never heard of this show, but he wrote an episode of The Adventures of Jim Bowie, and he wrote two episodes of Yancey Derringer. His favorite, uh, <laughs> in Inside Star Trek, uh, Herb Solo, uh, whenever he talks about him, points out that his, uh, he would mark up the scripts, you know, like an editor, and his, f- his signature remark when something doesn't work is, this begs explanation. <laughs> So whenever they saw that, they knew they had to go back and, okay, we got to fix whatever this is. Uh, William William Shatner's father, Joseph, uh, died, sadly, during the filming of this episode. And incredibly, Shatner chose to finish the day of filming. And Shatner said later that he got a lot of support uh, from Leonard Nimoy in that episode and also from cinematographer Jerry Finnerman. Uh, whose his own father had died uh, while they were making a show uh, a few years back. Um, and Shatner said that he actually found himself laughing at uh, some of Nimoy's acting uh, when Spock is mind-melding with the Horda, and that kind of helped him get through the day. Very little time was lost on the production uh, due to the good planning by the crew. In fact, the scene where Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are discussing the spheres was moved from the Enterprise briefing room to Vandenberg's office so they wouldn't have to uh, change sets at all. And I think that change actually improves the episode because you, mm. f- you really feel like they are trapped with the quote unquote monster. You know, they can't just beam away to the ship. It's more claustrophobic yeah, that way. Yeah. Uh, Shatner flew home to be with his family uh, the day after. So the show did go dark for one day and then they finished the ep- rest of the episode by shooting around him. Janos Prochaska plays the Horda in this episode. Prochaska was a stuntman and a performer who also played creatures in many shows like The Monsters, Lost in Space, and Bewitched, and so on and so forth. He was also in the uh, movie Escape from the Planet of the Apes from 1971. Apparently his most famous uh, role, and he actually spoke in this role, was the Cookie Bear on The Andy Williams Show. (laughs) Uh, He can be seen in other TOS episodes like The Cage uh, in the cage, he it was actually cut out of most of the cage, but there's this um, giant bird-like creature, looks like the San Diego chicken that he plays. Right. And also he played the Mugato, of course, in A Private Little hmm. War. And uh, it's, it's interesting because he had a, a spec deal with the producers that if he could come up with a creature design that was cool, they would try to build a story around it. And hmm. so apparently he came to uh, Herb Solo uh, and this is all from uh, David Gerald's book, The World of Star Trek. And yeah. he showed them this. I got this great idea. Check this out. And he showed them a prototype of the Horta costume. And he kind of skidded around on the floor. And then he, like, you know, dropped out an egg and everything. And they thought, okay, this is, um, we might be able to put this in something. And so Gene Kuhn put that in his script. And it's funny because he was um, he was an economical man as well, I guess, because the, on the very last episode of The Outer Limits, which he was working on as well, uh, there's an episode called um, The Probe, I believe. And there's a giant microbe creature that Prohaska played, and it looks almost exactly <laughs> like the Horda. So, uh, so, you know, reusing your designs as an artist, I'm sure that you've experienced yeah, uh, things yeah. like that. <laughs> that I mean, it, it just makes sense now that you kind of say it. Um, I haven't seen that episode, I don't think. I'll have to check it out uh, just to see the hoarder in the background or whatever it is uh, because it does kind of look like a, a giant amoeba type of thing. And apparently he um, he reused the uh, the Mugatu costume for an episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea as well uh, by taking ah. the uh, spikes off of it. So just general underwater gorilla, I guess, in that case. Um, <laughs> he also played uh, the Yarnik in The Savage Curtain. Uh, although no word on who designed that. Um, so I'm just going to assume it was special effects guy Jim Rugg for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is the first episode of Star Trek to air after the show was renewed for a second year. 
uh, after the successful letter writing campaign organized by Harlan Ellison. Uh, in fact, during the closing credits of the episode, the announcer came on and said that Star Trek would be back in the fall and please don't write any more letters. <laughs> they were, of course, getting a lot of letters. Uh, people would write letters anyway, of course. This time it would be thank you letters for renewing the show. The Horda eggs, it should come as no surprise, were made from toy bouncing balls. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently the prop used to depict the uh, damaged reactor circuit for the colony had been used previously as an Enterprise transporter circuit in the Enemy Within episode. And <laughs> the jumpsuits on the miners in this episode are a particular favorite of mine. Um they are so weird. Uh, <laughs> these guys are miners. They're not dirty at all. I can understand on a TV show, you don't want to necessarily dirty your uh, costumes. Yep. And these jumpsuits would go on to be all throughout the series. You th- see them mm. through all, uh, all three seasons. And I was trying to figure out what they reminded me of. Like, I thought these guys all look like they're in like a kid's band or something. Um, <laughs> like, I thought maybe yeah. it was maybe it's the Wiggles or something. And then, yeah. of course, I looked up the Wiggles and the Wiggles all have solid shirts and black pants. I think mm-hmm. inspired by I'm not trying to pigeonhole you because you're Australian, but yeah. <laughs> inspired by Star Trek. Like the Wiggles all kind of look like they're maybe like a knockout, like they're coming from the Orville or something. I think it's um, I think it's such a classic design in. It's very, it's a very class, it's a very clever design when you've got a bold color yeah. and black pants. So it definitely could have been inspired by Star Trek. Uh, I'm not an authority on the Wiggles, um, <laughs> well. but yeah, but now that you kind of mentioned it, it does make sense completely that that. But from a design point of view, I think that the argument could be made that it just it's a good design um, because it, it would look easy to differentiate them on a stage. Um, for kids yeah, right, and kids right. would be able to identify them really well so yeah i mean and i think that's that's the that's the thing about the original series in general and and next generation to some degree and of course all the shows is that they their design work is very very uh clever in that it's they do stand out like the colors stand out um and particularly like you know you see scotty and his red you know the red tunic for um, engineering it's very clear who he is um, even without kind of looking up type of thing, you can see, oh, that's a that's an engineering or a security guy, and there's a there's a you know medical or a science person, or there's a command person. It, it's 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 kind of inspired design work from uh, uh, shorthand for for viewers. Yeah, I was speaking with a guest the other day, and we were sort of wondering if that you know people. Um you could you could be born today and with streaming you could discover the original series and I don't know, it seems kind of unlikely but it could <laughs> resonate with you in some way where you go oh I want some more of this and for people who were born at the time when they would be watching say Enterprise when they were growing up I wonder mm. if that affected people's acceptance and assimilation of Enterprise the fact that they made a conscious decision to make it more military, uh, more monochrome, mm. and you know, and more um, sort of basic, rather than these big colors. At, at, like if their young minds didn't see, ooh, bright colors, cartoons, this is interesting, yeah. and just thought, oh, I'll move on to something else. Yeah, I, look, I'd probably, I, I think that's, it's a very valid point, actually. I think that's, it's probably a really, I mean, you look at like Marvel kind of films and DC and you know, comic book characters. They're right. all very bright. They're all very recognizable very quickly. Uh, and whereas with Enterprise, it is, and it's not, the, it, I will admit, it's not my favorite uniform to draw because of that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's very easy and very clear to to draw 
Spock or Kirk, for instance, because right. you can you can get away with a lot simply in the fact that um, you know the color will and the design will give it away very quickly. Yeah, yellow shirt, uh, swoop of hair. You've got you've got Kirk. yeah. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, you know, the context isn't required as much, or or particularly in my style where it, there's no nose and very <laughs> simplistic kind of yeah, you know, very simplistic features. But I can I can produce a Kirk for you, and you'll look at it and go, right, that's a Kirk. Sure. Um, McCoy's a little bit easier because he has some facial features that that you can that you you can you can make him look like McCoy a lot. Um, but it is it's it's a matter of. Um, it, it is shorthand, basically. And I think that's really... Like, even for uh, Next Generation, people often say things like uh, the beige backgrounds yeah, are, right. um, are boring, uh, is, is something I've heard a lot. And I kind of go, that's you, you're missing the point of the design. The design's very clever because it's designed to make them all pop. Right, right. And they do. Um, anything you add to that set pops. Um, so if you add, like, one of the acutograms and, you know, you have, like, a black screen against beige it suddenly that screen pops out and looks very cool uh if you have picard standing there in his black and red uniform he pops he stands out from the background you're never lost in the um you're never lost on screen yeah uh, whereas d space nine went um completely the opposite for that and tried to make it look very busy in the background and stuff uh, for their purposes of storytelling so it's all very good design um and i think that's what's f- wonderful about even this episode um bringing you back to devil in the dark um and everyone will have to forgive me because i always just drop the the devil in the dark I yeah just well, devil in the dark. <laughs> right <laughs> yeah and you and you can sympathize with that but you know kirk and spock running through those tunnels those dark you know bluish gray tunnels uh they just they stand out so well um and it's just they look fantastic and again we go back to the to the miners with their um their you know oranges and and reddish kind of jumpsuits with the whatever the little i noticed um in watching it last night uh, they have some sort of little brooch thing right, on right. their necks which i couldn't work out what i i could i couldn't get a clear enough detail i have to look it up later on what it actually is but um so i, I noticed that so yeah I, I think against that backdrop it looks amazing that well that might explain why Voyager and Enterprise don't necessarily do it for me is because I always felt that their environments were so sort of clinical, clinical and sterile mm. uh, for those reasons. And um, anyway, yeah, okay. Well, that's why TNG and the Enterprise D looks like the lobby of a Best Western. Now I understand. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Because <laughs> it's just, it's easy to dress um, and nothing gets lost. So, yeah. I mean, it, it has its own drawbacks, obviously. Um, things can stand out. <laughs> like a sore thumb but uh yeah it's 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 clever designing the same with the original star trek they all they all um are quite a contrast with their backgrounds yeah uh so whenever they kind of been down to a planet or they're in front of a matte screen all that type of stuff they just they just pop which is great yeah well I, anyway um the, the end of the story is that um devo they look like old devo like devo they today. do they do <laughs> they are 100 percent do actually <laughs> <laughs> just need the, now the you hats. say that You've ruined it now. Oh, yeah, no. Now you've said that. Sorry. <laughs> That's all I'll see now. So um, so when they see the hoarder, they must whip it. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, they, yeah. Are we not, uh, <laughs> are we not uh, smoking piles of bones that used to be men? Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, it. Is the, this is the only episode of the original series that begins without the Enterprise or its crew being involved at all in the beginning. Um, even before the main credits. And um, I think that that's, that really adds to the, 
the monster movie feel of it. Um, oh, yeah. I hadn't seen this one in a while. And when I tuned in for this show to watch it, um, I was like, where's the crew? Like, what is this? Like, did I, yeah. did I pick the right show? And I think that's great for just establishing the dread that we're supposed to feel. Because even in the you know late 60s, as a sci-fi fan, I think it'd be easy for you to go, oh, no, it's it's nice. The creature's nice and they're going to figure it out. Like, that's a plot yeah. you get. But they build yeah. this up so much and, you know, the terror until you have to make that switch later and go, oh, no, we're misunderstanding what's going on. Mm. Oh, I think um, the way it's shot is, and that's something I'd like to comment on, is I sure. think the cinematography in this is is exceptional. And I think that they've borrowed very heavily from the 40s and 50s sci-fi, the, uh, the atomic age type of thing, um, because we don't see the creature uh, we, you know, which is obviously part to do with what the creature actually looks like and is. Uh, it has no right to be believable, but it, it but it's completely sold to you. Um, but we see, you know, just just it lurching over the top of of these kind of uh, un, you know unwitting miners and 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 the occasional red shirt, right. uh, you know, in this wave like the blob or something like that, and it's it's really effective. And what I love about the start of this episode is that we get to see a different part of the Federation. Um, we're not seeing Starfleet here. We are seeing a, a mining operation, and uh, you know, and they're trying to they're trying to deal. And they talk about the Enterprise in in almost um, you know with reverence, almost you know, is the Enterprise coming? Because that's that's you know, there's the big ship that'll that'll save the day type of thing. Right. Uh, and I like that. I really love the setup to this episode. I just think that it's um it's this um, this uh, classic as you said monster movie. It sets the tone completely for the for the episode. Yeah, and there's a whole cadre of like old brill creamed men or like young mm. gangly you know officers who are there to get yeah. picked off by the monster. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, great. Which probably lends itself nicely to the the red shirt dilemma. Of, of people, you know, loss of red shirts and stuff like that. So this episode probably contributes to that significantly. Yeah, when he's got, he's doing the, getting ready to organize the search party and there's just like eight red shirts there and it's like, yeah. oh boy, this is going to be a bad one, yeah. They're all going to get picked off at some stage. So. <laughs> uh, Gene Roddenberry really liked the way this episode showed up the monster as something we didn't understand. Uh, he actually yeah. uh, said it was a classic example of doing that right. Uh, and he went on to say, I thought this was interesting, he said that, uh, quote, the horror suddenly became understandable it wasn't just a monster it was someone if you can learn to feel for a horda you may also be learning to understand and feel for other humans of different colors ways and beliefs uh which you know and nowadays it's so it's so self-evident and it's so well tread Mm. for us the idea that these guys are white on one side of the face black on the other we get it you know it's it's a metaphor for racism but yeah He's really the, I mean, it had been done before, but he's the really the guy that I think put that in sci-fi on TV. Like it just, it just became sort of Trek's uh, stock and trade to, to have mm. something like this. I think, well, I mean, what I love about this episode is it's about assumptions. Yeah, right. Um, you've made an assumption about, and, 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 and it's very masterfully done by these opening scenes is that we've been shown that this is a terrifying monster. Um, very much the same way that, that Frankenstein might be perceived as a monster mm-hmm. until you could kind of start to follow. And in Frankenstein, we follow the, mon- the the monster itself as we kind of make the realization that it doesn't, it didn't ask to be hit like this and all that type of stuff. Right. Whereas with this one, we're kind of, you know, it's, we don't know what the motivations are. We don't know kind of any of this thing. All we know is it's killing things. And, and we have Kirk and we have the miners all kind of echoing that, that thing. And it's all based on an assumption that this is that 
this thing's just evil or it's out to get them or, or the devil in the dark type of thing. Right. And what I, what I love the most about this episode, I'm going to say it now just to get it out of the way and then sure. I can just blather about other stuff, <laughs> is I love that the devil in the dark is us. It's yeah. not the hoarder. And I think that's just when that realization of that kicks in, that we're the aliens, we're the people who are, uh, you know, who are encroaching upon and killing, uh, we're the monsters. I think it's, and it's not done in such a way that it hits you over the head. Um, like it never, at, at any stage, does Kirk look at the screen and go, oh, we're the devil in the dark type of thing. Um, <laughs> just turns you know, to camera. <laughs> wah, wah. Exactly. It's like, how clever are we? Because we're the devil in the dark. Right. Like, you know, it's like The Walking Dead. I think there's a scene in The Walking Dead where it says that. <laughs> it, it was in the comic book and it's in the show, I think, where it's kind of Rick or someone kind of goes, we're the walking dead and it's like oh my god yeah roll credits for, yeah thanks thanks for explaining your very clever th- um title type of thing but at least richard matheson saved it you know for the end of the book like i am legend oh, or whatever no but that's that's a hundred percent but you know but that's the thing he, he did save it to the right to the end yeah um and it's taken you on this amazing ride i was going to mention that actually because this this does definitely feel like something he would have done um because it's got a lot of I Am Legend, um, it's got a very I Am Legend feel to it. Yeah. Uh, as far as this kind of oh, we are the, you know, we're the we're the we're on the wrong side of this one, and it takes smart people, and this is what I love about Star Trek, and I love about this episode because it's Kirk goes in ready to fire at things, like he's been given a problem to solve. There are people who have lost their lives. He he's a soldier. He knows what he has to go do. Yeah. But it's him and Spock's, of course, there being his logical side saying, well, hang on a second, this may not be what we think it is. Um, but it's Kirk who comes to that decision uh, because it's when he faces off against the um, the hoarder and the hoarder's showing intelligent movement and stuff. It's Kirk who pauses for a second and goes, oh, hang on a second. This thing hasn't attacked me yet. Yeah. You know, maybe it's not shoot to kill at this stage, even though up until this point he has been. He he even overrides one of Spock's suggestions or commands. Right, um, right. When Spock Spock says, you know, take the um, you know, see if we can take it alive, do so. And Kirk's like, ah, uh, no, we'll shoot to kill, and then pulls Spock aside and says, what what's going on with that? Right. Uh, <laughs> I love that it's Kirk who comes to the smart revelation that hang on a second, no, there is more to this. And what I love even more is that we've had this this mob, this angry mob trying to wanting to kill the hoarder, who as soon as the facts are presented to them, as soon as the facts are actually laid out in front of them, they go, Oh my god, we've yeah, we're at fault here. Right. Um right. how do you know, let's move forward. Let's move forward. And I think that's the beautiful message of this of this episode and of Star Trek in general, is that you can be wrong. You can realize that you're wrong and you can move on. You don't have to hang on to old prejudices. You don't have to, you know, there's no reason to keep being wrong. And there's no reason to kind of let pride go, make you stick to your guns and go, well, no, we're not sharing this planet with these creatures. They've killed some of our people. It's like, yeah, there's a logical explanation, guys. And I love that for this episode. I think it, it just... You know, it says everything to me about what Star Trek is, uh, that vision of humanity overcoming our previous kind of prejudices or stupidity, really. 
because you can have people kind of sit down and, and explain something very sensibly to them and then they refuse to believe it because it's not what they've always believed. Right. And there's nothing more frustrating than that. And I think that's what this is. This shows that these, these you know, redneck, I guess is a terrible term to use, but <laughs> these redneck miners, you know, yeah, right. <laughs> the, the, these, these guys, you know, these rough, rough and, you know, um, orange wearing jumpsuit guys. <laughs> they're men of the earth, <laughs> men of the Pergia. Yeah, yes. Men of men of the earth, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, they're out there, you know, getting the, cuz even one of us does have a crack at Kirk at one stage and says, you know, oh, in your, you're a big man with your with your big starship, but now you're down here in the dirt. <laughs> I also love how Kirk handles them all. I think it's a wonderful performance by Shatner in the even-handed like Kirk doesn't let anyone rile him in this episode. Yeah. Like, they're all screaming at him, we've got to kill this thing, we've got to kill this thing. And Kirk's like, you know, okay, everyone just chill out, we're going to do this the way I'm going to do it. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, and he's just, he's very kind of even-handed. But I do love the point where he shows his force, and it's towards the end when uh, I think the mob runs in. And again, it's this mob thing. It's like the whole Frankenstein monster type of situation. Again, they should have pick, pitchforks. They, they <laughs> yeah, almost <right>. do. <laughs> yeah. Like they've got clubs. You know, it's amazing. Um, they all run in and then they've, they're aiming their, their phases at it and Kirk says the first man who fires is dead. And the way he says it, the way he delivers it is just, it's, it's brilliant because it's so in control. Yeah. And it's so powerful and it's everything about Kirk that is, is good and everything. He has been given a new situation. He has the, he has the updated facts and by God, he's going to do the right thing. And I think that's just amazing. It's an amazing uh, examination of his character. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I, it is, I'm uh, so sorry for just... <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, it, it's a little bit squeezed in. I think it's done well, like you said, but it is a little bit squeezed in because we've got to have... It's a monster movie. Oh. It's Frankenstein. So we've got to yeah. have a, a mob with pitchforks. And then at the end of the episode, they're like... Oh, it's alive. Oh, great. Let's throw it a party. Like it's it's very what you'd expect of a Federation citizen, you know, but up to that point it's like it's not sentient. Put it on a pike, kill it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and <laughs> but they're not is, scientists. No, that's it. Um, and this is the thing. It's reality of a 60-minute TV show. Yeah, right, right. Um, <laughs> yeah. You're telling mini you, you're telling mini, you know, in a movie version of this, you know, it would it would be a much kind of you would you a much slower reveal of that and all that type of stuff. Yeah. But in this, yeah, you've got to you've got to make that shift very quickly i also think they um, could have they, they could have stretched the um the switch because we get a switch where you know spock wants to consider saving it kirk says no then kirk wants mm. to save it and spock is literally you know screaming at him to to shoot it and i think in oh, yeah yeah in a lesser script maybe a 35 minute long discovery script you would just have spock saying we've got to save it the whole time and Kirk or whoever yeah. the commanding officer saying, no, no, do, you know, we got to kill it. And at the yeah. end, that commander realizing, well, we shouldn't have killed it. But instead we get two changeovers there and we've still yeah. got plenty of time because now we, Spock is going to mind meld with it. And we've got that whole thing. And just the, the economy in which they put so much into this little story about a, a monster movie basically is like, mm. kudos, kudos to Gene Kuhn. Oh, it's it's it, as I say. I I believe it's amazingly written. Personally, I think that it's um. I think there's a lot of stuff in here, such as the Vulcan mind meld, which we get to see, um, being used quite effectively. Mm -hmm. We we have, um, you know, McCoy doing his classic McCoy stuff, and, the, and probably my only criticism is that McCoy's not as open as he could be. <laughs> yeah, because because we know McCoy's a smart dude, and we know right. that he's a compassionate guy. 
Um, you just and, can't and, believe and, there's a silicon life form out there. Yeah, which which is like seriously, McCoy. You had a, a salt sucking vampire ex girlfriend. <laughs> was your girlfriend <laughs> try to kill you, man? Yeah. Um, and I must have, I must say I, I will note the hypocrisy of the situation where you know Spock's like very gung ho to kill a salt vampire, but you know the hoarder is kind of no, no. It's the last of a kind. We've got to save her. Sure. Whereas, you know, the salt vampire, it's like, yeah, kill it. Last um, one. Yep. Yeah, last one. That's <laughs> Thank fine. God they're it's gone. like the buffalo. It's like <laughs> the buffalo. It's fine. Just right. kill it. Um, whereas this one, it's like, oh, hang on. It's the last. It'd be, a, it'd be a tragedy to kill it type of thing. It's like, oh, yeah, unlike the salt vampire that was trying to kill me. Thanks very much. Right. Um, I, yeah, so that's the only, but I love kind of, again, there's so much stuff to go around for everyone in this episode too. It's a smorgasbord. You've got Scotty working on, on an antique pumping station thing. Yeah. so you've got him being an engineer doing engineering Scotty. stuff yeah yeah um you've got mccoy going um you know i think i can you know i'm a doctor not a bricklayer and you know <laughs> I, I i'm beginning to think i can and cure a rainy day type of scenes <laughs> right, which right. are fantastic um and you've got spock uttering the you know uttering the lines it's life jim but not as we know it not exactly that way but yeah. that's where the kind of the quote comes from it's like this this is life, but not as we know it. And it's classic Spock. It's wonderful. Uh, and we get Kirk being a hero, um, you know, running through these kind of these tunnels and stuff like that. It's just, it's very, very well done. And that's why I say it's just, it's to me, it's the, this perfect bottle of, of an enterprise uh, of, a, of the, of the, sorry, the Star Trek episode. Yeah. That it's just, it's got everything. If we had Uhura kind of doing something and Sulu there too, but we got the top four, so I was really, really, I'm really happy with that because you get to see so much of it. Yeah, there's, it's, it's also really uncharacteristic and unique, I think, for a, um, for a '60s, you know, uh, adventure show hero to do what Kirk does, which is he's trapped mm. with the thing, and there's a little tête-à-tête between them, and then he basically just sits down and goes all right, well, clearly I can't kill you. And then he's trying to talk to it. And I <laughs> just think yeah. that's such a neat moment. And speaking, we were speaking of Farscape earlier. There's a moment in Farscape that I think it directly references that. Uh, I think it's the one with the Budong where Crichton gets trapped in this uh, cave mm. with <laughs> this like yeah. huge yeah. creature. And he tries yeah. to talk to it. And eventually he's like, enough of this Captain Kirk bullshit or <laughs> chit chat or whatever. <laughs> and then he just like vaults over it and runs away. Yeah. Oh, look, and, and this is the wonder of this episode that so many of the tropes do come from it. Yeah. Uh, and this is why it's, you know, the same as the Corbomite Maneuver. Um, that's probably the uh, the second episode that I would recommend as a full encapsulation of Star Trek. Okay. Because mm-hmm. it's similar themes uh, as far as, you know, the face of the unknown and all that type of stuff. Uh, but I think this one's, everyone's settled a little bit more and, and we've got the main cast rather than um, focusing on uh, someone raising his voice on the bridge and stuff like that. Right. Uh, I th- so, I, you know, they, they've just settled into the roles a little bit more by this episode. And I think that's kind of, that's really, really good. Uh, so, yeah, it, this, I mean, this is one of the episodes that I, I do say, if you, if you want to know what Star Trek is about, this is one of the episodes to watch. Even though we have a Horta, which is a guy in a rubber vomit suit <laughs> uh, look it cool yeah. what it is it is what it is but it's yeah. but the, and there's no reason for us to have any sympathy for this character or empathy for this for this hoarder but we do and that's the again the that's um Leonard Nimoy's performance which is extraordinary yeah and I've got to say Shatner 
um, he just brings his A game to this episode and had so much stuff going on on on, on the outside. But there's one shot of it where he's where it is him facing off against the hoarder, and the camera angle is amazing. I think it starts below and and moves up, um, and it's just him looking as grim as he potentially could holding the phaser on the hoarder and it's one of my favorite shots of captain kirk because it's just there's so much to it it's really cool i think we get a lot of stories like this uh and like the corbomite maneuver where it's something that we don't understand in Mm. the original series we get a lot of them in uh next generation as well but i'm not sure maybe i'm just too unfamiliar with shows that come later but it seems like they peter out and turn more into you know, we are the walking dead, you know, man is the monster yeah, yeah. Uh, type episodes yeah. or ones that are more introspective. But there's a ton, like even the first episode of, of TNG is basically that same thing. It's, yes. you know, we've discovered a life that we don't understand. And that's, that's Q's entire test for us is like, can these mm. idiots figure out that they're not like the most important thing in the galaxy? Yeah, no, that's, exa- that's exactly right. Uh, I think, I mean, it's just a reality of, of, coming after Mm. um you know there's a thing where you can watch some of these shows and go oh that's very cliched and you go that's because they were setting the trope right (laughs) you know it's (laughs) it's not cliched when this came out this is actually groundbreaking and very clever and of course you you look to that and you want to emulate the best of original star trek when you're kind of bringing a new star trek show to the to the screens and the the challenge is to do new stuff with it, which is again the um, you know the whole conversation about discovery, yeah. of don't try and be original Star Trek, don't don't even try and do it because you just it's it's not it's very hard to kind of recapture some of that stuff without us kind of going we've seen this a mile off, um, and I think Brandon Braga said it when they were filming Enterprise, and he said you know you're filming you know, thirty odd episodes a season, you're going to start repeating yourself all the time. And it's like, well, again, that's probably when you just change over the staff a little bit, but never mind. Uh, it's it's very hard to to stay within that format and do something different um, without one being criticised that you're not true Star Trek or whatever that rubbish is. <laughs> that's and that's um, what's so frustrating about that argument, especially as it pertains to Discovery, yeah. is it's either this isn't Star Trek and then the other side is, it totally is, and here are 14 points why it is Star yeah, Trek. Yeah, And I wish yeah. people could just, maybe it's not being created this way Let's either. Let's meet in the middle. Yeah, right. I wish that it could just be, here's a show, it's completely different, but it's from yep. from the makers of Star Trek, and, yeah. you know, just check it out. That's kind of what, oh, that's yeah, what no, DS9 was. DS9 was incredibly that's, different. That's that's where I'm, I'm 100% there, and, and I guess that's, it's very, as I said before, it's very tiring, I find, those conversations of the... <laughs> Yeah. The people who are really anti-discovery um, and the people who are so pro-discovery that they can't hear anything bad about the show. And it's like, yeah, but you can't, you know, it's, it's got to meet in the middle, guys. It's not a perfect show. It's getting there. It's trying very hard now. Right. Um, but even some of the stuff that it's doing now, I'm kind of like, oh, I, I wish they were finding their own voice. But that's not me telling anyone who likes it that they that they're stupid or they you know don't understand star trek i'm not gatekeeping this i'm just saying i you know i just i just want a really good story yeah i don't care yeah you know i don't care that something you know i don't like the over design of the costumes or whatever whatever 
it, it's not going to stop me from watching it and it's certainly not going to make me go this is not star trek because the costumes are weird <laughs> and think how many shows that you've seen before and you're trying to turn a friend on to and you say yeah uh just let the you know the first season is uh, but when we get to the second season it really takes off like with i know that hindsight is always twenty twenty, but we give so much latitude to uh, properties you know that we're trying to get ourselves or get our friends into so if you think about it with perspective discovery is finding its feet of course i mean it can only oh, go look, up from here it's it's not it's not being made at the same time as original star trek was yeah and that's the problem that, that's the thing and it's not being made the same time that next generation was made the, it is always a product of the 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 river that it's now standing in you can never stand in the same river twice and Whoa. this is where we're at now because it's it's new it's the you know we have different political systems happening around the world we have different discoveries not to use the term but you know science discoveries have changed our world completely mm-hmm. uh, we have the internet now we have you know um, we've been to yeah we're, we're sending probes to mars it's all these different things are changing and you can't recreate that you know, it has to be a product of its time, and that's what this is. And and another great example of that is Batman. Sure. <laughs> um, 60s Batman is perfect for the 60s. Yeah. Like, they, you know, Michael Keaton's Batman would not have worked in the 60s. I mean, it might have, but you know, at the time, that's what they were going for. And then 60s Batman doesn't work today. Uh, the Batman's always reflected the period, time period that, it's, that he's being presented in. Right. And you can tell that as you kind of go through the comics and look at the different movies and stuff like that. And so it only makes sense to do that now. Um, no, I don't want the the sets that they had. You know, you can see this in this episode. There are the tunnels are uh, sheets on, you know, on a um, on some sort of frame. You can see that they're very flimsy. No one touches the window, <laughs> the, the walls of these tunnels. Right. Um, you know, so I don't want that. That's not what I'm asking for. But I, what, I, what I would like to see, and my only criticism of current Star Trek is that I think you can update without throwing everything out the window. Um, so I think that the designs, and I think we're seeing that today with the new kind of uniforms and stuff. They're, they're updating them and stuff like that. I, I think that these designs were all amazing. They just need to be expanded for today's kind of marketplace. Yeah. Um, and th- again, watching this episode, you're, gonna, you're looking at the hoarder. Um, I watched the remastered versions, which have got the CGI effects and stuff in them. I, right. I don't actually, I'm not a purist. I don't need to watch the original effects <laughs> okay. because okay. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't affect the story to me. And, sure. and I think it's a very accessible way of watching it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the map paintings alone in this are just amazing. Oh, yeah, and definitely. They're clearly, they're clearly paintings. Yeah. But they, they work so well. And I just kind of, and, you know, and if you're going to dismiss this episode because the hoarder looks silly or the map paintings are fake or the they run down the same cave structure, you know, 20 times, you're just missing the point of theatre. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> you you know, know, from, it, from it, a design perspective, uh, Aliens and Trek just because of the peccadillos of human biology tend to be humanoid uh, in nature generally. But uh, do you have a favorite uh, non-humanoid alien design from any Trek series in particular? Oh, that's a good one. That's a good question. Um, I, I, I almost, I really love the, um, the ridiculousness of um, the Megato. Um, (laughs) 
It's fun to draw. It's really fun to draw. Yeah, it's, it's it, yeah, it's a hundred percent a joy to draw that character. Um, I've got several figurines of it, and the '60s figurines, like the old Mego ones, yeah, um, of the Megato, is just. I just love um, because it's it's so 60s and like he's wearing a shirt and stuff like that, like a green, bright green shirt. And he's got the horn and he looks like a Planet of the Apes kind of but white. Um, <laughs> yeah. I just love I, I love the, the kitsch feel of that. So he it's not a particularly you know, I, I actually enjoy the episode a lot. Um, but yeah, it, it's just that design. I really love that. Um, I think the because the, the problem is that so many of them are, are, are the humanoid. Yeah. aliens because yeah. they have to be and and they explained that really well in next generation i think um so i like the borg too i think the borg oh, are yeah, probably sure. one, one of my favorites to draw because i can draw a borg <laughs> without having to look at any reference or anything like that to make sure i'm not missing a uh, detail because you just stick gears and hoses and if there's if it's not looking like a borg stick more hoses on it um <laughs> sure i just just go nuts with the hoses uh for for an advanced um technological race they have an awful lot of hoses yeah uh, right <laughs> but yeah it's like i just think that so the hoarder is it's a unique character I, I mean i love the salt vampire too that looks amazing yes yes um you know the gorn is a very hard one to yeah, and, and these are very classic looking um 60s aliens that you can get away with in this series whereas We've all seen the Gorn redone, and it wasn't exactly as good as it could be. Yeah. Um, whereas if you'd walk someone out in that exact costume, I don't know. I think I possibly would have worn it better, and would have gone, "Yeah, I can, I can. I don't want a CGI Gorn. I want the guy dressed as in that ridiculous kind of puffy lizard <laughs> outfit." Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll believe it. I'll, I'll accept it um, for whatever it is. So I always yeah. liked, uh, I always liked Sylvia and Korob from uh, Cat's Paw. At the oh, end, yeah, yeah. At the end of the episode when they lose their magic or whatever and they're just these tiny little yeah. like pipe cleaner type creatures. Yes. Pipe it, cleaner creatures. It yep. doesn't quite I think with modern camera technology they could make the perspective, you know, and the uh, and the yeah. scale work. It doesn't quite work, but they're just nah. so weird it would be so easy to just have them show sylvia yeah. like oh she's an old woman you know with horns or something yeah. like that but they just went let's do this probably because they were out of money but they said let's yeah. do this and somebody just let their imagination go crazy and you just think about it's ambitious yeah well like what where, what's where's this is the planet tiny that these little tiny <laughs> pipe cleaner <laughs> creatures live on like i just had so many questions about that another favorite of mine is sargon um mm. who's a is is basically a giant globe yeah um that has been reused all through original star trek uh, yeah he was i think he was nomad at one stage and it was and the uh romulan cloaking device and uh, that's Enterprise right it was too yeah yes so I, I like that too that's a clever it's a clever way of kind of of just it's a solution that they've got and i think that's kind of i look i think when you've got too much money when you're making something that can often be a hindrance as well. I know it sounds crazy to say that, but I think when creativity comes into play and you have to be creative with your camera angles and your money and what you're building and stuff like that, I think that can all, that can actually work in advantage of, of a creative activity. Yeah. Um, and I think Avatar is probably a good example of that, uh, where <laughs> Jim, Jim Cameron has no... He, he had no barrier. Um, he could just spend as much money as he wanted to make pandora and all that type of stuff and it looks great don't get me wrong but is it as innovative as the terminator like terminator or terminator 2 um 
you know, it, I just it doesn't have that same kind of you know Terminator. They're trying to make this liquid metal, and they're trying to work out how to do it, and they've got mercury, which doesn't react in any way that they want it to. So they've got to be creative and run, you know, uh, glue along strips of of where they want the 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 mercury to roll and huh. stuff like that. <laughs> it's problem solving 101. It's instead of just doing it all in CGI, you've got to try and work out okay, how are we going to make this look real? And I think Star Trek really shines when it's doing that. And I think that's something we've seen in in all the shows. Yeah. Um, because they they do run out of money very very quickly into a season, and they go, all right, okay, from now on, it's, it's a disembodied voice. Um, <laughs> the alien right. and the, the alien ship is invisible. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's all it's we all. You have to build a model. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, or oh, look, the Klingons have been selling their ships to the Romulans, <laughs> and now the Romulans have Klingon ships too. Uh, we didn't even talk about. <laughs> We didn't even talk about uh, the the scene at the beginning, or just the scenes with the miners in general. Uh, there's a guy named Schmitter, who uh, it's, I guess there's like a New York in space. Like yep, yep. generally, there's a kind of received pronunciation type situation that you get, you know, with actors uh, on mm. on TV in the '60s and uh, in movies. But this guy just comes like he's just like they got him straight off the street. It's just like, <laughs> boy, I, I sure don't want to get eaten by one of these uh, by some kind of monster. But it's so folksy. I love it. Yeah, I, I th- I'm sure that was on purpose. I, I hope so. I hope it wasn't. I hope it wasn't an accident because it is very clever on itself too. It's like if only they had a kid there too. Golly, Mister. <laughs> yeah, there's the one. Golly, yeah, there's, there's yeah, the one guy. Golly, that... golly Mister, are you going to save Ruffles? Are you going to save Ruffles? <laughs> <laughs> no, son. Ruffles has been eaten by the hoarder. Um, right. Yeah, you know, it, it, I, I, it is kind of, and and you know he. He may as well just look at the camera and say, I am going to die. Yeah. <laughs> if only he had a, a, a wife and child back at, on Earth that he has to he has to send, or he's an elderly mother that he has to send his paycheck to. Right. Um, that, that would have really sealed the deal for him. But yeah, you're right. There's, there's, it, it, it is a great accent. Well, since I'm only two days from retirement, I guess I'll wait here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. Golly, golly, sir! I just—it just feels so gosh darn dangerous down here. Yeah, <laughs> there's yeah, and then there's Off that guy that gets killed. I think last or second to last, who looks—he uh, kind of looks like Kenneth from Thirty Rock. Who? Yes. Uh, yeah. He basically just actually um, that actor, the, um, the red shirt actor uh, who looks like Kenneth from Thirty Rock. Uh, I think his character's name is Kelly, and as far as I know, um, that is his only credit. <laughs> his wow. his name is okay. John Cavett. Uh, nobody knows yep. anything about him. He plays a guy that goes, uh, and then dies in The Devil in the Dark, and nobody ever saw that guy again. So, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad that that this was done in a period where we weren't quite as snarky on TV too. Because I honestly, when Spock rocks on in, and he looks at the phaser and the burn mark on the ground, he goes, "He didn't even have a chance to fire his phaser," and I'm like. Eh, didn't he? <laughs> and this guy kind of like, you know, didn't he? Really? Because right, right. he should have had it out and he should have been ready to go. I mean, I, you know, a, a bit of sarcasm would have been <laughs> appropriate in the scene, I think, um, because he did kind of let the team down uh, because it had plenty of time to rear up and, and, and jump on him. So, yeah, but that's that's just, it's getting to a stage where it's it's pure and innocent time when he was he was stunned by this silicon creature's beauty or something. Right, or yeah, or just horrified, <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. And just didn't because I've you know I've got a replica phaser here. They're pretty easy to pull the trigger. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that, they need it's a, a hair scene trigger. With him fumbling and insert with him like ah. Oh, to that would have been it. awesome. 
That would have been awesome. They um, lost yeah, that. that would have been they lost that because Shatner uh, had to go. They couldn't. They couldn't shoot that. Yeah, yeah. That would have been amazing. I would have loved that. So. Uh, I had a question for you. How does mind melding work exactly? Um, because <laughs> we get a lot of mileage out of the whole. I'm gonna put my hands on your face in these acupuncture yeah. points or whatever. But yeah. we do have a um, a no contact mind melt here. And for all the haters who say that it's impossible to have a thousand light year mind melt or whatever, I'll just say that <laughs> we do establish that you know whatever telepathy is in this universe, it can be done you know without touch by Vulcans. Well, we we actually see it twice because we also see it on this. Uh, yeah, we obviously see it in this episode yeah. where he gets the vague impression, but he also does it in um, a taste of Armageddon, I think, um, where Spock and Kirk are locked up, and he mind melts through the wall. Yes. To get the poor guard to open the door. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so it's definitely it's it, it's as far as if you're gonna if we're gonna get into canon, and canon's a filthy filthy word as far yes, as I'm concerned. It is. Um, <laughs> Because I feel that head cannon is the only cannon that matters because no one can <laughs> okay. change it on you. Right. Um, if, but if we're going to talk cannon, I mean, the reality is that, yes, indeed, in, in at least two episodes um, that I can think of, including this one, uh, Spock can mind meld without touching. Whereas I've read in like Star Trek and books somewhere that Vulcans are touch telepaths. And it's like, but they're not. Like we've seen it twice here. Right. Um, so you know, yes, I, I don't. I, I I've just accepted it. I don't really think it matters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me either. I like to the emphasis of you know the my mind to your mind thing. Like you are leaving a piece. Well, that's a deep. That's a deep. Um, see, because as he does say in this in this episode, where he's only got a sense of pain, right? And he yeah. hasn't conveyed anything at that stage. Yeah, it was not until he actually touches the horta that the exchange happens properly. Right. Yeah. And then of course so like I think the that's Horta, a good definition. The Horta gains at least the ability to write yes. <laughs> however it writes with its acid, I guess. Uh, in broken yes. English. And so there is an exchange of uh, understanding and information there. If only humans could actually mind meld, there would be no conflicts or wars. Well this is it. Um, although in saying that I don't know if I want anyone digging around too deep. Stay out of um, Stanley's mind. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's not pretty in there. Um <laughs> Yeah, well, and and I guess that, that's something we haven't just, just discussed either, I guess, is um, the Horta's no-kill eye, which is iconic and amazing. And and I it, it has, again, it's one of these things that has no right to, to actually work. <laughs> yes. Like on paper, if you read that, you're like, that's not going to, that's not going to fly at all. That's going to look ridiculous. But here it's sold so well um, that it just does work. And then, and there's the conversation of, of what does it mean? Does it mean that it's not going to kill or that we shouldn't kill it and stuff like that. And I like that. I like it. I just think that it works. And I think Spock's whole mind meld thing, I, I really feel for Leonard Nimoy because uh, the performance is is amazing, but it's also, it would be very embarrassing on set. Yeah, you have to put yourself out there for sure. Oh, and playing a non-emotional um, character continuously and then having to do that, it's it's quite a um, it's quite a feat, and to go on that story that you were telling before about how Shatner um, found it quite funny when Spock was when Nimoy was reciting his lines, it's actually one of the um, sore points apparently oh. uh, between them. <laughs> really, according to yeah, according to Shatner's, um, I think it's his Leonard book or 
it's one of the it's one it's, i don't think it was in movie memories i think it was in one of his oh, sorry star trek memories okay. it's one of his books he um talks about that was actually um yeah leonard Nimoy was actually quite offended that he made a joke during that because he thought he was doing you know the right thing and and it was being he was being set up basically by shatner to to do the line now for for good purposes i mean it wasn't shatner just trying to be a dick to to leonard nimoy he was trying to break the tension and blah 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 but leonard nimoy apparently didn't didn't quite see it that way because he was the butt of the joke yeah um well he's a talented performer but i have heard you know other anecdotes about he's there you could rub him the wrong way sometimes yeah he would take something where you'd be like oh it's a joke and he wasn't a joke to him sometimes yeah yeah so it's it's an interesting so it's it's interesting that kind of whole thing was going whenever Nimoy's kind of doing those lines I'm always reminded of that story and I was just like I feel it's a shame because it is um he really is wearing his heart and his sleeve in that performance even though out of context it looks ridiculous Hmm. like you know out of context it's just it's silly as um but in context he sells it I I just really like that um yeah and again yeah it's just it's but it's a testament again to the actors themselves who are just really great performers uh, I think he did say, uh, Nimoy, that um, the closing banter um, between Spock and Kirk uh, in the show was one of his favorite scenes to perform. This is the whole, like, mm. I, I see no reason to stand here and be insulted. Oh, he felt classic, that that, yeah. that really encapsulated, you know, the relationship between um, Spock and Kirk. Which, again, it's funny because the, the character of Kirk is literally making fun of Spock. That's fine. But when yeah. Shatner tries to rib Nimoy, no, we can't have that. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, 100%. <laughs> I love their kind of relationship in that I remember um, reading an article somewhere where he talked about the Galileo 7, oh, how yeah. Kirk, Kirk doesn't appear in that episode except on the bridge and everything like mm-hmm. that. But for the most part in the episode, Spock is without Kirk. Mm-hmm. And he said that he watched the episode and kind of came back to it and went, it doesn't work. Um, mm-hmm. Spock and Kirk are a, they're a package deal and the episodes work better when they're working together. Um, and he didn't actually like the Galileo Seven for that reason. Is that they're two parts of the same character, and I, I thought that was really interesting uh, because you do kind of feel that absence of when they are interacting with each other. It always shines, and I think Star Trek Four is the best example of that. Yeah, of you know, it's just magic seeing Spock and and Kirk kind of wandering around San Francisco looking for whales. Um, <laughs> yeah. But they work so well together, and I think Nimoy had that. Um, egos aside, I, th- I think he had a very clear understanding of that. That yeah. it was they were they were better as uh, a sum of all their parts rather than individually on their own. And I, I would agree both ways. Whilst Shatner is he can be quite mesmerising on screen and completely eats up the screen, um, it always worked better when they had particularly the trio uh, there. I think that always worked better. So yeah, not the empath though. Um, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I was that... going to mention Spectre of the Gun with people who, oh, are, okay. who uh, yeah, sure. are, are, are all upset. I was going to mention it before when we were talking about you know people not believe. It's like Spectre of the Gun is not a bad episode, yet it's literally just facades of a western set. Yeah, right. <laughs> with a different coloured screen type of thing. It's actually, you know, you can't get too caught up in this at all. Right. When you when that's a perfectly acceptable episode. <laughs> I think that uh, Shatner has said in the past that this was his favorite episode, particularly because uh, of what was happening behind the scenes. Um, But he has said other episodes before, but he likes it. Um, Anthony Rapp has also said that this 
And I think Amok Time are like two of his favorite, if not favorite episodes. And specifically because of Nimoy's performance and um, mm. also um, going through the mind meld with, with the Horda. It's nice to hear that. It's nice to hear that. Um, yes. Because it's always, I mean, it's always nice to hear uh, as someone who's involved with Star Trek currently, um, I guess, uh, living their dream out to some degree. Oh, like, yeah. it, you know, Will, Will Wheaton, when he was on Next Generation, yeah, being a massive Star Trek fan, that's what a joy um, to hear those stories that he was excited to put on the spacesuit and stuff because he was a Star Trek fan. And whilst it's perfectly fine for someone like Patrick Stewart or someone like that who, who ha- wasn't a massive fan of Star Trek to begin with, right. uh, you know, you don't need to be to do your job. Uh, and uh, people always get a little bit disappointed, I think, when they discover that the the actor in question doesn't know anything about the show or whatever. <laughs> but they're doing their job, you know, and they're doing their job well. Yeah. Uh, but it's always a joy when you discover that someone is really into it, and and it is, you know, it's it's a joy for them to go to work because they get to to play in the in the universe that they they grew up with. And I think that's really neat. So that's really nice to hear about Anthony um, digging the digging these episodes and knowing what these episodes are at least so you've met you've met shatner have you met any other uh, stars from trek um gates mcfadden i met her recently oh, great. um she was out here in australia and she was delightful and a lot taller than i thought she would be yeah she's very tall. Uh, well yeah because we'll see i dressed up as um i'm not a cosplayer at any means but i'm at an age now where i um i can grow the Riker beard and have a bit of gray in it <laughs> sure. and i've got generally if i'm going to cosplay any of the actors it'll be Riker. yeah and so i got a nemesis outfit and um and went dressed as that and then i went stood next to her to get a photo and realized how much shorter i am than jonathan frakes ah. um and made that joke to her which she said no it's perfectly fine she was delightful um uh um dominic keating i met him too oh, he was delightful yeah. Oh, real pleasant guy. Really, he's another one who's really he knows exactly kind of the ben- the the joy of. He's been re- he's really great with the fans. Yeah, he's like a, he, yeah he's great he, at conventions. He loves the fact that he's part of Star Trek, and I think that's awesome. Um, and he when he was chatting with me, he was just yeah really giving, and I like that. I think that's really I think he become jaded really quickly and and not kind of want to talk to anyone and stuff. Um, but yeah, yeah, he was really, really good too. So, and I think that's it. I think I've, I've met a couple of Stargate people, and and um, I think Jason Momoa is my other big one, oh, literally okay. <laughs> big one. I have a photo next to him where he, he I literally don't come to his shoulder. Oh wow! Um, this is pre Aquaman, so um, this was uh, Stargate ish. <laughs> sure. Was and, this so? This was back at that time when he was uh, before. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was just after um, Game of Thrones. Okay, um, okay. So he he was he so had a beard. He was, yeah, yeah, he did actually. Right. Yes. Um, so he was um, he was famous for um, Stargate, obviously in Stargate circles. Right. Um, but he he just kind of he'd finished his run on Game of Thrones, and so he he'd reached a wider audience, and they were just about to announce that he was Aquaman. And when I was talking to him, um, I said, "Congratulations." Um, on becoming Aquaman, and he just he grinned and just winked because he wasn't allowed to say anything. Oh, okay, <laughs> interesting. So he's a very cheeky dude, and he's very clever. And he's and um, I don't know if I can repeat what he said to me because what I do is I, I like to take one of my drawings and get it signed by them. Uh-huh. And he's he so I got a picture of him as Ronan to sign, and he picked it up and he was like, um, he just stood up. Um, and just yelled out, this is effing awesome type of thing, as only he could in his voice. And it was just, yeah, he was really, it was just, it was an absolute pleasure to um, to encounter. So, yeah. 
Well, go figure. The the funnest, nicest, most personable guy has the biggest DC movie. Who would have thought? Yeah, well, this is it. You know, um, oh, he revels in that. Now, I think that comes across. That's the yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other really good one was um, Christopher Guest or Judge? Judge. Um, Teok from Stargate. Oh, he yeah, was, yeah. Mm-hmm. He was an absolute delight, too. He was actually the first celebrity I met. Um like that in a convention kind of situation he was just very very cool i would like to meet christopher guest though (laughs) yes (laughs) the six-fingered man of course yes that's it did you have any last thoughts about the devil in the dark that you wanted to share i'm so happy you got the title out that time oh please (laughs) i love um i actually i mean i i don't know it's it's i can't gush enough about this episode which is ridiculous it's just because it's not an episode that originally as a child stood out to me yeah Uh, it's an episode that i've come to love as an adult and i i just there's so much depth to it and i would really urge anyone who's not seen original star trek if you've only ever seen uh discovery or you've just you know um or even the later, you know, D Space Nines and stuff like that, and you are looking for an original Star Trek episode, a lot of people will say to you, Trouble with Dribbles or um, or uh, City on the Edge Forever, whereas I think this is actually the best episode to, to check out everything that's original Star Trek um, and the joy that is original Star Trek. Yeah, um, in Greenwich or England or wherever it is, you know, they have a um, hunk of metal that is exactly one pound, and it's how they determine, you know, what the weight of a pound is. And that's what mm. this is for Star Trek. It's like this yeah. is the Star, this is the Earth Star Trek episode that you can compare all the episodes to. And it doesn't mean that that another episode isn't, no no isn't better or is worse. Um, I just think that if you you want to encapsulate everything. If you can only have one episode to to showcase Star Trek, I think this is the episode that does that. Uh, and you know, and there are plenty of episodes uh, in all the series that are just exceptional. And I think Inner Light's a good example. Um, mm-hmm. It's a Picard episode, and, but it's it's a genius episode. It's one of my it's possibly my favorite Next Generation episode, but it's not the best example of Next Generation. It's it's an extraordinary story. It's an extraordinary performance, but it's not. It doesn't encapsulate what Next Generation is. Yeah, right. Um, it's just a really good story. So this is, yeah, Devil in the Dark for me is is original Star Trek in, in complete package. Well, Very I, neatly tied up. I'd have to agree. Uh, let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? It, it is Captain Kirk. Um, sure. It's Captain Kirk because he was my space dad, I guess. Sure. Uh, which sounds so cliched. Um <laughs> But I, you know, I grew up with, uh, I grew up in, in probably not the, the greatest circumstances. And I think uh, as a whole generation of people who grew up possibly in similar circumstances to me, who turned to television for our role models, right. um, who were guided by uh, stuff like Star Trek um, to, to kind of shape who you are as a man um, or as a woman, obviously. Sure. Um, and I just kind of... This original Star Trek was there in my formative years, and the combination between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy really kind of resonated with me. And it is that kind of what would Kirk do and stuff like that. And I can see how people would do the same thing with Picard. They see the same thing with Janeway, uh, Cisco. All all the captains bring their own kind of era to their to their positions. But Captain Kirk was that character for me, and and. It's shown so many times, particularly in this episode. I think it's, you know, I've talked ad nauseum about that, 
But um, Star Trek Four is another great example of of Captain Kirk or Admiral Kirk at that stage of the Earth's in danger. I'm not even questioning it. We're going to go do the right thing. Yeah. And it's not even like it never crosses his mind to go. Oh, we might sit this one out and see what happens. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's the it's the wonder that is Captain Kirk, where it's like Spock goes, well. I've got a crazy idea. It probably won't work, but we could give that a try. It's pretty much all we've got. And he's like, right, we'll do that then. Right. Um, and it's this wonderful, you know, connection between him and Spock. And also McCoy, they're going, well, this is crazy. We shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> yeah. and, and so I think them three as, a, as, as characters do really epitomize kind of the good qualities in humanity. And so I grew up, as I said, with MySpace, that, um, who Captain Kirk could beat up pretty much any any of the other captains oh, controversy boy. it'd be a, well no i think it'd be a pretty fair fight uh with maybe uh, cisco, the edge cisco to him. would give him cisco would give give a fair run cisco's a big guy cisco's, yeah. a, cisco's a big guy and i reckon he can throw down yeah um whereas you know picard I, th- I think we've seen that you know picard's more of a diplomat and and he had to go get kirk to to beat up Sor- um soren so you know yeah. and and I, I think he'd only just he'd only just beat out um janeway slightly Right, right. She's scrappy. It depends she's on how much coffee so she had. To... Yeah. Well, this is true, um, but you, she's scrappy, so I'd give uh, you know I give her a chance there. So absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, now that we've reached the end of the show, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in? Uh, sciences, botany, actually. Botany, very specific. Why? Yep. Why botany? I, you know what? I have an interest in, and it was something I only discovered um, through a meme. Um, a couple of years ago where people were yeah, asking about Star Trek, uh, a Star Trek meme, where, you know, those 20 questions and stuff like that. Okay. And it was exactly that question of kind of what are you, what would you be? And of course, the instant answer is always, oh, I'd be captain. And it's like, well, the reality is, you know, very small percentage. And I was thinking about it, what interests me and something that I, I probably should have pursued in my actual life was, um, was botany. I've always had interest in plants. And so the idea of doing kind of xenobotany or, or space botany would always would be really, really interesting. Plus, I really like um, plants shaped like hands. Um, okay. I think that's a it's, it's a throwback to um, to uh, the naked now uh, on the naked time. Sorry. Um, Janice's plant uh, hand plant. <laughs> right. I'm a very pro hand plant. Yeah. Um, so back then, I think Sulu was. He might have still been a botanist, or <laughs> yeah, that was uh, it might just been his hobby. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, before Helms it might have just been his hobby. So, <laughs> so yeah. So, but um, yeah, I just think that's that's it's something I would have liked to have pursued in my real life. So, I think in my fake life as an ensign aboard whichever ship, I'd like to be looking at weird alien plants. And they never find enough uh, plant-based life forms or like you know sentient life forms hmm. uh, on, in Trek. Of course, in Farscape, you've got um, Pauzo Tuzan. Yeah. And I think yeah. there's other shows or, or universes where you have that, but you don't see that in Trek a lot. So I don't think they dig deep into it. Like you had the spores from um, This Side is Paradise, and there was obviously a shared hive mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in a different show, it might have been explored more. Yeah. Um, we have the, uh, I think there was an episode of um, Enterprise where a, a giant kind of mushroom spore plant thing took over and was... It kept um it, it kept kind of sucking crew members into it, oh. uh, which I think was because they, they the only reason why I remember the episode is they had the making of because um Belana Torres directed it okay. and they were talking about um the making of it and how they had to shoot it and they were hanging in these um these harnesses but it was like it was a plant that it, it, like it was like a um a, a, 
spore kind of mushroomy fungus type of thing, right. which uh, I think obviously going on to um, discovery later on is interesting. So yeah, I, I, I think it's it's not something that they've um, particularly uh, explored as much as they could have done. No, no Groots. No, no Groots or, or the or the thing from um, the original version of the thing was a plant. Right. It was like a, a, a cabbage type of thing yeah. <laughs> which attacked them until it became the horrible, horrible thing that um, John Carpenter made it into. Right. Well, Ensign Sergeant, that's going to be confusing. Uh, Ensign Sergeant, confusing. thanks for joining me <laughs> to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can at, at EIST Pod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Um, very easy. Uh, on Twitter, you can find me at Lee Sargent, L-E-E-S-A-R-G-E-N-T. Um, that's, it's just, I, I, that's my name. I put it out there. Sure. Um, you could also um, probably LeeDrawStuff.com is probably the easiest hub to find me at. You can generally find me all over the place. So it's hard to get rid of me, as, as you will attest to. <laughs> and people, um, can people... After, the, <laughs> and, after the 16 hours. <laughs> and can people buy your work uh, at uh, LeeDrawStuff? Yeah, lead draw stuff is the easiest place to kind of kick off there. So, um, yeah, with definitely currently doing commission pieces. I've got a long list that I'm loving right now because I'm getting so many different kind of... um, I'm working on a Harry Potter piece right now. It's just all these different wonderful genres that are... uh, that if you do a year's worth of Star Trek, you forget exists. So it's exciting to kind of be doing all sorts of... But it's exciting doing the Star Trek stuff. Um, I love doing the... um, I love doing the like Worf and and Spock. They're two my two favorite characters to draw. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll draw them any day. Um, but the other thing I will mention is Star Trek 365.com. That's the Star Trek 365 project. If you have an inkling to draw anything or to take a photo of any kind of, if you do a paper mache version of a gorn head or um, anything <laughs> crocheted crocheted your own um, starfleet uniform i don't mind um please there's a form on there jump on there and submit it so i can share it with with the rest of the um the trek community yeah that's awesome uh well thanks so much for joining me on the show today thank you so much for having me and we're signing off until the next mission hailing frequencies close <laughs>